Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Appears to be some friction in the relationship between China and Canada. Also a situation in our province with sick kids, a lot of them. And the Calgary Banff Passenger Rail Link. Uh, it sort of got a cold shower from the province earlier this summer, but Daniel Smith says, no, I kind of like the idea and I'd like to see it go forward. We'll talk about that. Relations between China and Canada in the spotlight today. I don't know if you caught this. The audio is not great. I will play it for you, though. But a rare behind-the-scenes moment of diplomacy. Um, Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping criticizing Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Why? Because Trudeau shared details of a conversation they had had yesterday uh, on the sidelines of the G20 summit. And uh, she uh, said, you know, everything that we discussed has been leaked to the paper, and that's not appropriate. Here, here's here's his interpreter. They're all three of them are there. You've got Trudeau, you've got the interpreter, and you've got she. So that's a failure of Albert. Oh, hang on. Sorry, sorry. I've got the wrong clip going on there for you. I apologize. This is the one I'm trying to play. Everything we discussed has been leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. And that's not how the way the conversation was conducted. If there is sincerity on your part. Free and open and frank dialogue, and that is what we will continue to have. We will continue to look to work constructively together, but there will be things we will disagree on. So you've got um, you've got the translator saying everything we discussed had been leaked to the paper. That is not appropriate. Trudeau interrupts and says we believe in free and open and frank dialogue, and that is what we'll continue to have. We will continue to work to constructively work together, but there are things we will disagree on. They then shook hands and and went separate ways. Um, now this is uh, we know there's so many different aspects of this going on this morning. Um, Canadian officials saying we need to have our eyes wide open to Chinese interference. You know, the story that Global broke last week about uh, as many as 11 uh, MPs being, I don't know, not funded, but given some money by uh, the Chinese government and also people working in, in MP offices. So China really, really, really working hard to get involved in Canada's political system. And today Trudeau said that, you know what, we know what's going on. That's what he was talking to Xi Jinping about. Um, saying we have to continue to be on guard. He was talking about, uh, he said he raised concerns about Chinese interference following the police station story we talked about a couple of weeks ago. China reportedly meddling in the election, trying to fund some candidates and things like that. Uh, he did say, however, our elections are secure. Canadians can and must be reassured that, yes, foreign interference is an issue in a lot of different ways, as we've seen all around the world. But the integrity of Canada's elections have not been compromised. Okay. Um, so the whole relationship, how, where do you draw the line? Because some things it's beneficial to have the Chinese involved, some things it's not. Um, for example, about a year ago, there was an international conference hosted by the Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario. It was an international, everybody's welcome. There were a number of topics on the agenda, including... Attacks on democracy by Chinese and Russian forces. Um, the Chinese military asked for an invitation. The Department of National Defense in our country ended up saying, 
Yeah, okay. And there, there's reasons they did that, too. I don't think China actually attended. It was all virtual anyway. But but it, it begs the question, where do you draw that line? To help us get some clarity on this, we're going to chat with uh, David Burkusson, who is a professor of history and director emeritus of the Canadian Centre for Military Security and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary. David, thank you for joining us again. Appreciate your time. No problem. A lot going on here to start. Um, why don't we just take a look at this particular conference, the one that happened last October, um, where China asked for an invitation and they were given one. Um, it was all virtual. I don't think anybody came here, but, but there were some good reasons for having China at the table for that one, right? These conferences are fundamentally academic. Uh, military historians and some other people who, who uh, study the military, sociologists and anthropologists and so on, come together and give their papers. And uh, there's nothing secret about the material that they're giving. The, the conferences are not closed to uh, anybody. And uh, you can get the information that they're giving at these conferences. You can get them online after the conferences yeah. are over. You know, there's uh, there's no reason why the Chinese shouldn't be sitting there or sitting there virtually and hearing this stuff. And uh, if, if not here in Canada, they would go to... Australia, or they would go to Indonesia, and they would, or Japan, and they would hear the same thing. And so, no reason they shouldn't be there, and perhaps some reasons why they should be there, right? Department of National Defense, uh, in, in extending the invitation and explaining why they did, said, you know what? It, it's good to have them there. That's why we have these. We want to make connections and we want to have dialogue. Exactly. Um, somebody who comes to one of these conferences may end up in a very high position somewhere down the road. Uh, then this is a person who knows Canada and new Canadians make some connections. Uh, and, and there's, there's nothing secret or, uh, of an espionage type nature that goes on at these places. And, you know, I mean, I, I, we get the deliveries from Amazon at the house every day and half of them are made in China. We, we, <laughs> we, we still, this is not the Cold War we had against the Soviet Union when I was much younger, where, you didn't see any mail, yep. you didn't see any products, you didn't have any communication. Okay, we have to be very, very careful about dealing with the Chinese, but we can't pretend that we have a Cold War with them yet. Well, that's the issue, right? When we have that intermingling in so many areas, primarily economically and trade and all the rest, you're right. You know, to sort of just put up a firewall is all but impossible. But we've we've made mistakes before, right? I know you and I have talked about some of the concerns you've had with, um, you know, uh, Chinese people, um, forces or military are being involved in, in training exercises in Canada, for example. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's the sort of stuff we shouldn't be doing. And uh, you know, the, the, our current liberal government has just only recently, I'd say within the last six to nine months, uh, had, had, a, had the cup of coffee to wake up to where our allies have been, which is you've got to be very careful in dealing with the People's Republic of China. You just do have. They have ambitions which cross our ambitions. They, they have... Uh, uh, aims that are very different from our own, and uh, this this attempt to try to uh, infiltrate our electoral system. Well, I mean, of course we we should expect that to be happening. The onus is on us to protect ourselves. It's not on them for right. us to go to them and say, "Well, gee, please don't mess in our affairs." Uh, we've got to be much stronger, and uh, the government, I guess, lately, I'm not exactly sure why, except maybe pressure from uh, our allies, as, as the government has lately been saying, okay, well, we we can't do this anymore, we can't do that anymore. Okay, fine, you should have done it five to ten years ago. 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, we've, we've talked about it on the air many, many times. So what, what, what do we need to do? Like you say, we can't, we can't ask nicely. That seems to be our first tr- course of action on all of these sorts of things. After the fact, what do we need to be doing ahead of time to make sure, you know, our next election, we don't have the Chinese government paying um, potential MPs part of their campaign money? Because we need to have a much more secure way of looking at money coming into the country. In the United States, for example, you, you, they, they are, you, Americans are not allowed to receive money from abroad. Now, that, that in itself is not good enough, but it's a start. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you can't receive money from abroad. Uh, the second thing is that you need to uh, police the donation system of all of these candidates, provincial, federal, and municipal. Uh, you've got to try to clean the system up of foreign money, and especially of money coming in from countries whose interests are at odds with our own, like China. Um, so that's, uh, I, I think that's a, step, that's a starting point. But then you need to stamp the word of security on everything that you're dealing with China. Uh, we're starting to do that now with things like chips and so on, and we finally got on board with Huawei. Uh, but it took us way longer than it took uh, many of our allies. So why did that happen? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, whenever we talk about a lot of these stories, it all comes back to the two Michaels. They didn't want to mess up negotiations with the two Michaels, but that's now a year by um, and shouldn't be as big of an issue. When it comes to, you know, when we find out who these MPs were, uh, we know there's 11 of them that, you know, maybe got money. What what do we have criminally? Is there a criminal sanction that can be applied here? Or is this just something that we've had a giant loophole on? Well, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, and I can't tell. I, and I don't know the election law that, that closely, but I do know that there ought to be something yes, to yeah. stop them from receiving funds, from a, as I say, from a country whose interests are so much different than our own. And uh, that's, just, uh, that's a simple, plain fact of life. We, can't, we just cannot allow our elections to, to, be, uh, to, to, to be undermined uh, by these kinds of processes. You know, we're talking about elections, but how concerned are you about what they've done with post-secondary education, how the Chinese government has infiltrated that? We know that's a big issue. The police stations, I mean, it's not just government, right? Yeah, I'm I'm very concerned. These these institutes that they have set up across the country in several universities are open doors for the dissemination of Chinese propaganda. Right. And everyone knows it and has known it for years. Uh, I don't know what the situation is at the University of Alberta. Uh, the the uh, University of Calgary has not had one, and we will not have one. Uh, I think there's a few others that are still operating at other universities in Central Canada, but uh, we know what they are. So what are, what is they're just propaganda mills that you set down in inside a university, which is not for the study of this or that or the other thing, but to push a certain political line. We wouldn't allow that for, for Canadian organizations mm-hmm. that only existed to push political lines of, of, of one sort or another. So why would we want to allow it to, to the Chinese to be doing it? So is, is it just, I mean, for lack of a better term, the golden rule here, he with the gold makes the rules? Is that what it is, just the, the economic influence? and, and yeah, how it can, it can, Yeah, it can be, but, you, you, you know, there has to be a limit to yeah. what you are prepared to allow. And uh, I, I mean, universities have got open and free discussions, have no problem with inviting Chinese diplomats or Chinese scholars to universities or having exchanges. I know about 20 years ago I was brought to uh, China uh, and we had some academic exchanges there and we brought some of their people over here. 
that's a different thing. Right. Yeah. When when you've got when you've got a cockpit of propaganda, uh, selling the government line to students, and trying to in a sense slowly change the opinion of Canadians towards the policies, and I and I stress the policies of the PRC, then you have a, di- a difficult and dangerous situation. I think it's key there, you mentioned slowly turn the tide, because it's a long game. Oh, yeah. All of these things we're talking about have been happening for years. We're just starting to realize it now, I think, or at least react to it, but it's been going on yeah. a long time, right? That's the plan. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's scary stuff. Uh, yeah. Dr. Burkusson, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate being here today. So there's no doubt we've got a situation on our hands in this province right now. It's not just our province. This is happening um, in a lot of places right now. We've got a lot of really sick kids. Um, but the alarm bells are being rang in Alberta specifically. And, of course, that's what we focus on here. Um both the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, uh, the Children's Hospital in Calgary, saying, boy, we're, we're maxed. This is it. You know, we're, wait times are getting really, really long. We just have so many sick kids dealing with primarily RSV and, and you know, those kinds of things. It's We've got actually three viruses. I think we'll find out. But um, we've definitely got a situation about a week ago, I guess a little more than a week ago now. It was November 7th, so a Monday. Um, the Edmonton Public School Board reported that more than 13% of their students were out sick. Some of you are texting me and saying, hey, my classroom, it was over 40%. Um, wow, unreal. We've got this perfect storm. We've got the flu, we've got RSV, we've got COVID, all of it sending kids to the sidelines. Uh, at a meeting yesterday, the Edmonton Public School Board decided they would send a letter to the province asking for some advice on how to handle things. They want the new chief medical officer of health to get involved, bring in safety protocols, For when a school has an outbreak, that might include masking, at-home testing for kids, um, which, as you know, has left the realm of public health and become completely and totally political for the last number of years. So what do we do? The situation is not good, uh, and it doesn't look like it's ending anytime soon. We're going to chat now with Dr. James Talbot, who is an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta and former Chief Medical Officer of Health for the province of Alberta. Dr. Talbot, um, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. So you were in the position of Chief Medical Officer Health not all that long ago. In a situation like this, what is the role of the person in that office? What's the job? Well, I think the job of the medical officers of health in the province, because there are also local MOHs that are attached to each of the regions, is to make sure that they're there to educate people as to, first of all, how big the threat is, Secondly, what they can do individually. Uh, thirdly, what they can do as a group or as, uh, you know, a government or as an organization. And uh, then to keep them informed as to the, the progress. Are we winning or losing? I mean, that's basically the job. Um, so, I mean, just going through the situation that we're in now, the school board asking for some advice, uh, I think that that's probably a position they feel that they, 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 they have to do something. I mean, what we're dealing with right now is very extraordinary, right? I mean, we always, people always say, hey, we always have sick kids in the fall and winter. That's the way it goes. But this is not normal sick kids in the fall, right? No, uh, I mean, I've never seen numbers like that. I, I will say, though, just because I don't want to create a sense of panic where they're 
there isn't one, mm-hmm. but uh, it's not unexpected. We had three years in which any newborn, you know, newborns are born with only the protection that they get from their mom's antibodies, and that only lasts about six months. So anyone who's of the age of zero to three hasn't been exposed to any of these viruses so far. And even the kids who are older that than that would have had much less exposure because of the restrictions that were in place. They worked against COVID, but they worked against everything else as well. Mm-hmm. So you would, I think everyone expected that this year was going to be a particularly bad year. That does mean the fact that it's such a bad year that it's putting pressure on schools, on families, and on the hospitals. So just so I understand that, is is that the immune deficiency that we hear talked about, where basically uh, the, the kids who might have gotten sick over the last three years are all getting sick now because they didn't over the last three falls? I, I wouldn't call it a deficiency. It just means that they're, you know, if you think of, of um, an epidemic or um, uh, an outbreak of disease as you do a forest fire, this just means that there's more kindling. You know, there's just more kids out there that haven't been exposed to the virus, and so they're uh, and they're susceptible to it. It doesn't mean they're immune deficient in any way. Their immune system will behave perfectly uh, once they're exposed. It's just that they haven't been exposed up until now. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I, I was interested in you saying, you know what, there are things we can do here. I mean, there's different levels that we go to. And to start, you know, parents, kids... Uh, you can do things on your own, right? Like, I mean, there are steps you can take without any prompting from the schools or the government if you want to go ahead and do it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I don't think of it as civil disobedience, but uh, I mean, I think, it, you know, it's empowerment for parents and families. So, you know, the five viruses that are uh, are circulating in the province right now, the top five are influenza, rhinovirus, RSV coronavirus, COVID, and and parainfluenza. So two of those have vaccines available. So that's the first thing you can do is make sure that your kids get their vaccine for COVID and for influenza. The second thing you can do is to make sure that if your kid's symptomatic, that you don't send them to school. We don't need any more kids ill. And by the way, as a parent, if you're symptomatic, you shouldn't be going to work anyways because uh, you shouldn't be passing it on. So that's the second thing. The third thing is, I mean, I would uh, personally, I would reinstitute masks for my kids. One, I don't want them to go to school and get get sick and not be able to attend school because I know how important that is. And, you know, selfishly, I don't want them coming back and infecting people in the home. So, you know, I, I, what I remember about being chief MOH with Albertans is there's just an enormous amount of common sense out there. Um, so, you know, those are pretty practical things that uh, parents can reinforce right now. You know, when we start talking about getting guidance and advisement from the chief medical officer of health and bringing back restrictions, are we near that level? I mean, obviously, we've come to that level before, although people disagree whether we did or didn't. But where we are right now, is that something where you think a chief medical officer of health does need to get involved in some official capacity? Well, I mean, we're closer to that. And I think, you know, as I said before, um, you know, a medical officer of health is a physician and they have the same relationship to the community that they serve as a doctor does to a patient. So if a patient came in concerned 
about something and asking what they could do. It's the same as when a community asks gotcha. an MOH. And so what you were talking about with the Edmonton Public School Board is that the community is starting to ask, well, what else can we do besides what we do as individuals? And, you know, there is where I think there's another level of protection that's possible is that, you know, mandating masks uh, uh, for students would be a way to slow transmission down and potentially take some pressure off the emergency departments and end up with fewer kids ill. And, you know, if I'm a principal in a school, I'm going to be worried about the people who work there. I'm going to be worried Mm -hmm. about the teachers, the teachers' aides, the volunteers who come into the school. And so I'd like to be able to make sure that they're wearing masks. I can do two, three things. One, I can make sure masks are available so that, you know, you purchase those in case there are teachers or teachers' aides or volunteers who can't afford them. But then either strongly recommend or require. But if you're going to require them to wear masks, it's helpful if every school is doing the same thing. It's helpful if the school board agrees. It's helpful if it's happening across the province so that I don't have parents going, why is it happening here not elsewhere? So, you know, school boards and principals have the ability to step up to the plate in this situation. But I think it's a lot easier when they get leadership from uh, public health. Um, A lot of doctors today in the news talking about we're worried about where we're headed. We don't know what the peak's going to be, when it's going to be. We know how things typically behave. Uh, From what you're seeing, um, what's the risk if we don't manage to get this reined in at least a little bit? How much longer will it last? What's your, uh, your, your prediction about where we might be headed? Well, if I could predict that with certainty, I would be in Vegas full time. But (laughs) I I can say that, I mean, it doesn't look like we're close to the peak now. We know there's usually a lag period between when kids get uh, exposed and when they end up needing hospital care. And the fact that the hospitals are reporting that they're stressed now is reason enough to start ramping up the measures that we take, either fight it in the schools now or you're going to fight it in the hospitals. And I would point out two things about hospital capacity. I mean, the first is the province doesn't have a lot of pediatric beds and it has even fewer pediatric ICU beds. So, you know, we could see a replay of what we saw with COVID where it's not just the fact that the bed is occupied by somebody with COVID or with uh, flu or RSV. It's that the kid who needs the chemotherapy for their curable leukemia isn't able to get into hospital. The kid who's injured and broken arm and needs an operation, needs a plate put in, isn't going to get that. So, you know, we don't have a lot of capacity at the best of times. So that's the first concern if we're already up against that. And then the second concern is that, um, you know, we have staff, pediatric staff, who have been working their asses off for three years. And mm-hmm. I, my colleagues, doctors, nurses, respiratory techs, orderlies, everybody in the hospital are just bone weary at this point. They're mentally, physically, emotionally exhausted. And so that's the exact same people that you're asking to step up to the plate now. So, yeah, I I think that sense of urgency is real and that it would be better to do things faster rather than slower. Yeah, exactly. And and try and mitigate it. Uh, Dr. Talbot, great insight as always. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you.
I wanted to have this conversation. You remember we talked about this. I don't remember when we first talked about this on the air. The uh, rail link from, well, basically it goes from the airport through Calgary and then out to Banff Canmore. And the province back in the summer sort of said, yeah, you know what? Mm, not really into it all that much. But now that Premier Daniel Smith is in charge, it's apparently been pushed back onto the old front burner. Shortly after they announced they would be interested in making a new arena deal come together in Calgary, or helping to, not sure what role they can play, the province has now jumped in supporting another mega project. Um, Premier sending a letter to the mayor of Calgary saying, hey, guess what? Not only is it the arena, the province is also ready to explore an LRT link to the airport, followed up by a train to Banff, too. So, obviously good news for the group that's been working on making this project come together. So to join us and talk about that, we have Jan Watrous, who's managing partner of Lyricon Capital. Jan, thank you for joining us again. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, yeah, this must be great news. Very exciting from your standpoint, right, with the province expressing some support for a concept that you've been working on for a while. That's that's absolutely right. So we've we've been working on this for well, we're going into year seven, <laughs> and uh, and you know what was so great about the announcement that the premier made yesterday is that it's clear that the government is making the passenger train a priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, so not only did she uh, write a letter to Mayor Gondek of Calgary to say that uh, that the province was was. Uh, supportive of uh, pursuing the passenger train, but it was also included in the mandate letter to the uh, Minister of Transportation, which, of course, is is kind of the syllabus of uh, what to do next uh, in any government uh, department. So we were really thrilled with with, uh, both of those uh, uh, announcements yesterday. Bring us up to speed on where your project is. As you say, you've been working on this for a number of years. First of all, what would yeah. it what would it be? Basically, it it's from the airport through Calgary to the mountains, right? Roughly. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we it's a five phase project. We are in phase four. Phase five is construction. So we've come a long way, uh, and essentially the project is, as you said, it would start at the airport. Uh, a passenger train would go to downtown Calgary about every 10 minutes uh, throughout the day at a cost of $10 uh, per passenger, so very affordable. And then from downtown Calgary, it would go on to Cochrane, Morley, Canmore, and then Banff. And that part of the route would go about every hour and a half to two hours at a cost of $20 uh, per uh, passenger. So, you know, this is a train that really has the opportunity to uh, to do a lot for Alberta. Um, it's not just cost effective in terms of its capital cost, but the cost for the riders. But it also is a, is, is a train that really could help with labor mobility, uh, diversifying the economy by encouraging tourism, since it will be coming right from the airport, revitalize the downtown of Calgary itself. And, of course, the reason why I got involved in my family at the environment environmental benefits because this is a train that would be hydrogen powered mm-hmm. so it would be the first hydrogen uh, train in north america so all of that all of that makes us uh, really excited honestly now the, the province just help me clarify i don't know if you've had a chance to speak with anybody are they talking about supporting this idea generally speaking or supporting your plan for this idea how specific have they gotten in terms of that 
Well, we're going to be meeting with the Premier and the Minister of Transportation in the next couple of weeks. Okay. But as you can imagine, we've been liaising with the uh, government uh, throughout this whole period. And uh, we uh, presented what's uh, referred to as an unsolicited proposal to the government with these five phases a couple of years ago in partnership with the Canada Infrastructure Bank uh, from the federal government. And we, uh, we, we secured half of the funding, uh, to build the track. Uh, the total cost is 1.5 billion. And we secured half of that funding a couple of years ago from the Canada Infrastructure Bank. And the other half would be financed through ourselves and our partner plenary and the chartered banks, et cetera, through a P3 partnership. Mm-hmm. So this is a very specific proposal that we feel offers these benefits to the province and also uh, does so in a way that is, um, that, is, that is affordable because, and the key defining fact is that the, the track would actually be built within the CP Rail's existing corridor. So Lyricon, my family business, has a MOU with CP Rail to do just that. And so essentially what we would be doing is leasing uh, the corridor from CP, CP Rail. And, and why that's important is that it really dramatically decreases the cost of construction because you, you don't have to buy buildings or houses or expropriate land, et cetera, along the way. This is an open corridor that we would just be adding to and essentially twinning the track. Uh, in terms of the province saying, you know, we're interested in in supporting the idea, they weren't uh, in the summer, which I know sort of uh, derailed, uh, forgive mm-hmm. the pun, uh, some of what you were working on. What is the ask of the provincial government in terms of them supporting your project? What is it you're looking for from the province? Sure. Well, uh, back in uh, back in August, the then trans transportation minister, just for clarification, did not say no to the project. He he voiced what he saw and his government saw as some issues that yeah. had to be resolved. Right. And so since then, we've had an opportunity to clarify those. And essentially, they were three things. One, it was the risk transfer. That is, is the province going to be on the hook if it costs more than what we estimate for capital costs? Answer, no. And is the annual fee to the province going to be above what is estimated if, for example, we have low ridership? Answer to that, no. So the risk transfer mechanism of the P3 has been clarified, which I think gave the province a lot of confidence. And then the second thing was the Banff National Park came out with their management plan, which, you know, is released every 10 years. And now it's official policy in this plan to discourage single-use fossil fuels and encourage green mass transit. So I think that also has given the providence some confidence. And third, the uh, MOU or the Memorandum of Understanding that we have with CP Rail just a couple of weeks ago was extended for another year. So this too, we believe, gave the Alberta government further confidence. So what what we're looking for now is um, what is referred to as a pre-development agreement. And that is the start of phase four, where we will now go out to our communities and do extensive consultation with all of the municipalities and also look very closely at the 
the actual design of the train and what uh, what pinch pinch points etc have to be taken into account and so the ask for the provinces to work with us in that very important stage four uh, with the hope that being at the end of stage four they will be in a position to make uh, what's referred to as an investment decision so a final decision based on very uh, very sharp penciled costs uh, for the project and your I mean your your timeline hasn't changed you're you're foreseeing this possibly within what three years right yeah so what so what we envision is that the the stage four that we're in now uh, to do the uh, consultation and the design would be about 18 months. And then at the end of that, we'd go to the province with the final investment decision. And then the, the actual time to build the track, to twin mm. the track and the and the uh, and the bridges, et cetera, that go with that would be approximately three years. So if all goes well, we would be choo-chooing down the track in middle of 2027. So it's a it's a timeline that's that feels uh, doable. It's one that we can all uh, kind of participate in and enjoy and, and see. And, and it's, it's, it's not 30, 50 years down the line like no, so yeah. many complicated infrastructure projects. It's very much in, the, in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a very doable range. Well, Jan, I appreciate the update. And, of course, we'll chat again as this project moves along, should it move along. Oh, I, I so appreciate your support, and thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Jen. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.